So let's jump straight in. Passenger pigeons, amazing species. Uh, but can you tell us a bit about what is a passenger pigeon? Well, why is it so important to the environment? Yeah, well, you know, we passenger pigeons are Revive and Restore's flagship project, the one that started off uh, our de-extinction work. And the, you know, the, the hypothesis we had when we started built on the decades of, of kind of assumptions and other hypotheses that, that these birds had to have been very important in the environment. Um, and before I kind of explain that, I just want to say like when we started in 2012, you know, a lot of the natural history of this species was largely conjecture. Like there was a lot of historic data, but a lot of conflicts between how to make sense of, of that data and missing, there was missing information that we, we've, you know, I felt like genomics and the things we could do could really fill in. And the reason that people suspected passenger pigeons must have been very important in the environment is because they were once the most abundant bird species on the planet. So in the early 1800s, their populations were um, somewhere between three and five or billion um, living in the Eastern US from about the Gulf of Mexico up to Hudson Bay and living in the, the, for, the woodlands of those areas. They're a forest pigeon. So very similar ecology to the wood pigeon of Europe, um, to uh, the band-tailed pigeon of the West Coast in the United States. And, uh, you know, eating acorns, nuts, seeds, berries, anything living in the forest. Um, but what made them the most unique pigeon in the planet wasn't just the fact that there were 5 billion of them, but it's, it's the really cool dynamic that there wasn't 5 billion of them just spread out everywhere with like a hundred here, a few hundred there, a few thousand there, you know, like what we, we think of um, other pigeons like morning doves or rock pigeons in cities. And, and here's a perspective. So, you know, you go to Rome or you go to London and you see thousands and thousands of rock pigeons flying about. There are only about 200 million rock pigeons in the entire world. And so there were 5 billion passenger pigeons living just in Eastern United, Eastern uh, America. And, crazy. and rather than being spread out like rock pigeons are or something like that in small flocks, they were forming these hugely dense social flocks of anywhere from several hundred million to 3 billion birds in a single flock. So there may have only been three or four or like five flocks of passenger pigeons in the world at one time, um, at any point in time. Um, highly concentrated, the world's only colonially breeding, uh, uh, truly colonial breeding pigeon of 350 species in the world. And with those huge numbers and that colonial high density kind of living nature, what they were doing in the forest was coming into an area of forest, which could have been anywhere from a few acres to 30 square miles on average, to the largest nesting colony ever recorded was uh, 850 square miles. Um, the, uh, in those areas, they were crowding on branches um, to the point where until it was all settled, they would crowd so much that they would break off branches, entire small trees, um, and deposit so much guano on the ground that it would just snuff out all of the understory. And, and through between the guano and the breakage in the trees, they were basically combining the impacts of both a, a wildfire and a storm. 
and creating this amazing disturbance in the forest that sounds hectic and crazy and horrible, but disturbances in forests reset the life cycle of the forest. And so once the pigeons left, you would have the regeneration and regrowth of new successional forest habitats. And it turns out that the Eastern United States forests are just evolved for that kind of dynamic. Most forests in the world are actually evolved for that kind of dynamic. And, and the pigeons were the main driver of that. <clears throat> but when we started our research, it was unknown as to whether or not these giant flocks of passenger pigeons were a natural element like that had always been shaping the forest or if they were had kind of like boomed out of control recently due to some type of human change in the environment, um, which would have made them not so great. And, and in our research over the last few years, we've been able to, you know, and other people's research actually independently, the, the picture has squarely emerged that these birds were a long-term like natural driving element of the ecosystem, the primary driver of, of ecosystem engineering, starting those regeneration cycles, basically going to a new patch of forest every few weeks, creating a disturbance, kick-starting re regeneration and keeping that going. And because of doing that, they were able to sustain uh, very large amounts of biodiversity and productivity in the Eastern US, which is largely declining today, despite the fact that we have uh, a lot of reforestation, but it's just that dynamic is just gone. Um, it's something that forestry managers really work hard to do, but I don't think humans will ever be able to do it on the scale that the pigeons could. And that is the motivation for trying to bring them back. So I suppose what is in many ways so interesting about this species is that normally when you have a keystone species, the keystone aspect, the sort of trophic impact is kind of built into the morphology. So if you look at a beaver or you look even at a rhino or an elephant, you can see just by looking at an individual animal sort of what its impact is. But with the passenger pigeon, it's basically entirely the social behavior or the behavior in general that gives the impact. The morphology alone would not tell you that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've actually, I've personally viewed 509 passenger pigeon specimens now. Uh, it's, it's a hobby of mine to go to collections and try and see them. There's about 1500 in the world. So I've, I've made it to one third, um, almost one third. Um, and, you know, you look at an individual passenger pigeon and it's a beautiful bird. It really is. You can clearly see that it's built for endurance and speed. It has more swift like wings. Uh, uh, it's a sleeker bird than a rock pigeon. Um, it's, it's, you know, they, ha they have a very, in proportion to their body, they're a very strong breasted bird. Um, and the males, you know, this slate blue color, almost, you know, very rich blue, rich slate blue down the back speckles, some slight black speckles on the wings and this beautiful red breast. And just by looking at the bird, you might think, oh, well, this is a very pretty pigeon, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't give you that sense of what it does in the environment other than being just like any other pigeon, you know, that's something we've lost with its extinction, you know, that, that in the 1800s, seeing a giant flock of those birds, that's the only way you would have really gotten their impact. Like once you see that flock, you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is an immense force of nature. Um, but it's absolutely the behavior that makes that happen. There, um, there are obviously a lot of different tree species that co-evolved alongside the passenger pigeons in the eastern forests. Do we see some of these species decline because of the loss of the of the passenger pigeon? 
Yeah, well, it's very complex. Um, one of the most dominant groups of tree species during uh, the last 10,000 years were oaks, um, red, white, black, uh, various oak, oak trees, which were a, a primary, primary food source for passenger pigeons. Um, and these types of trees, even though they were being, uh, their seeds were being consumed by the birds, they were co-evolved and adapted to be, to take advantage of the pigeon dynamics. So these are trees that need those types of disturbances to sprout new, new shoots and, and to, and, you know, these are, these are disturbance dependent trees. And without those disturbances, oak trees have been in decline. Um, and in favor of maple trees and other shade tolerant trees that do well in closed canopy forests. However, there's a complex interplay, not just with the pigeons, but also with fire. So what's weird is, so passenger pigeons became functionally extinct to the forest around the year 1885. Um, they did not go completely extinct in the wild until 1902. Uh, uh, did not go completely extinct in the war in 1914 when the last one in captivity died. But, but as a driver of forest disturbances, the, the last large flocks existed in 1885. And so from that point forward, there were no more large flocks of pigeons. Um, and, but in that late 1800s to early 1900s period, due to the industrial revolution and the way people were colonizing these, uh, uh, I mean, well, settling, settling these, uh, we, sorry, scratch all that. The way the industrial revolution was going and the way Anglican settlers were uh, changing the landscape, the frequency of wildfires actually went really, really way high up. And so in the early 1900s, there was actually an expansion of oak trees due to fire disturbance in those um, in, in the eastern US. But then starting around the year 1900, because fire was such a danger to humans, people started really trying to scale uh, control fire. And by the 1930s, the Forest Service had actually implemented the 10 a.m. rule, which meant that any wildfire that got started had to be put out by 10 a.m. In, in the morning. Um, and so they were, they were stopping fires. And so from the 1930s on, you had the complete removal of not just the pigeons, but also fire. Um, so all disturbances were basically gone. And it's from the 1950s forward that people started seeing a noticeable decline and shift in oak. So there was this kind of brief, brief expansion because of fire after the pigeons went extinct that was independent of the pigeons. Um, but then the, the complete loss of disturbances has definitely led to that. Um, and in the last 50 years, people have been using fire to try and, and help regenerate oaks. And it can be effective on a local scale. Um, but what they're learning more and more is that the intensity of fire to actually stimulate very adequate forest regeneration has to be very intense, um, which is the kind of intensity that uh, didn't really happen that often throughout history and is difficult to control today. Um, so controllable safe fires are, are only adequate if you combine it with tree thinning and canopy thinning uh, mechanical practices and those are the types of things the pigeons were doing, right? So what we're learning in forestry is, is even though fire did end up being a very huge driving 
factor for a brief period of time and was a management tool by the First Nations people for thousands of years. Um, the pigeons were definitely the primary engineer. Um, and so even though it's very complex with the way this ecosystem has experienced losses to pinpoint what happened since because of the pigeon or whatnot, you know, we, we are getting some emerging stories of, of what is the complication moving forward without the pigeons. Yeah, and of, of course, the, the oaks themselves are also keystone species, which provide, you know, uh, masting for a lot of um, lot of species and also, you know, nesting room for, for, for other birds such. So it, it really is like a knock-on effect. You take out the pigeons, it alters the forest, and it affects the entire ecosystem. It's, um, it would make the pasture pigeons a really, really effective conservation tool, hopefully. Um, I do want to ask briefly, because I think people might wonder about this. A billion is a big number. Several billion is a several billion times bigger number. And I presume people didn't count these animals. And it's a bit late now. So how, where are we getting these numbers from? What's the estimation involved here? Yeah, there's, there was, there's definitely no way in the 1800s and still no way today to, to count a billion animals. Um, so these are all based on estimates. Uh, so some of the early estimates were from the flocks flying. So John James Audubon and, and Wilson witnessed several uh, uh, large flocks that took several days to pass over an area. And so they would try to count maybe just a small section of the flock and then estimate the size by going, okay, the birds fly approximately 60 miles an hour. They took 14 hours to fly overhead. So that's, um, you know, what, that's six, 600 some miles of, of uh, seven, seven, 700-ish miles long of a flock. If it's a mile wide and there are so many birds per square yard, they would estimate based on that. And they would come up with numbers like one to two or three billion birds. Um, the... I have recently attempted to try using a different method to calculate the population sizes of passenger pigeons. Um, in 1870, uh, a census of forest density was, was compiled for the United States. And so we know because of, so here's, here's the big missing part of this story. I mean, the, the reason the passenger pigeon went extinct is because of industrial scale harvest. So in the 1800s, when you went to the market to buy meat, you were not buying beef or sheep or pigs in the United States or chicken. You were buying wild game because farms and ranches had not established to the point where they were large enough to feed this nation, a nation which in the 1800s was seeing a huge influx of European immigrants. Um, so the human population was, rot was going up, 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 and the agricultural base to feed it was not established um, for that population size. So in the Eastern US, uh, com food companies hired trappers and hunters to basically kill everything. And by the early 1900s, any fur bearing or game animal in the Eastern US was on the verge of extinction, if not already extinct in the Eastern US. And flocks of billions was an easy source to get lots of food. So. So there was an industry around trapping and, and killing off these birds. And because this was a very lucrative industry for several decades, anything with money tied to it has great records. And so 
there are records of the 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 area of nesting colonies and roosts and other other uh, passenger pigeon flocks where the trappers were going out and trapping. And so based on the location and the size of those nesting colonies, overlaid onto a forest density map, we can take observations of how many nests were in a tree and apply that to the, to the nesting area. And with those calculations, we still get numbers of one, two, three billion um, for the estimated population size from that, that Audubon and Wilson were getting with their calculations. So it's, it's pretty rigorous, but the only other things we have to go on are, are records where people just say, we saw, we saw an infinite number of wood pigeons today. Um, you know, like the, for, for 400 years, there are nothing but, but records from military, from birders, from individual citizens, you know, just, just every day, every walk of people and all of them come back with, they were uncountable, they were immeasurable. They were in, you know, they, they, they took days to pass overhead, hours to pass overhead. Um, they blotted out the sun and their wings created wind, you know, it's just, and it's, it would be one thing if we, there was like one like old miner looking for gold saying like, oh, I saw, black bear that was 14 feet high and it's like that's clearly made up but when literally dozens of people from professional to amateur level are saying the same thing at different times in history at different places it's uh it paints a very very uh clear picture it's sort of independent verification i suppose that's yeah. also what these historical estimates and now your new study them arriving at a roughly similar conclusion that's also a case of sort of independent verification yeah it's, it's very good consilience i mean basically the history of passenger pigeons is one where for centuries they were uncountable to a moment in time in which they were countable and that is the the 1880s um about that 1885 mark you hit 1885 there are no more large flocks and all of a sudden the records change from oh the the nesting colony was 40 square miles to we saw 300 passenger pigeons fly overhead today or we saw 54 passenger pigeons in a in a tree today like it's just the decline was so sharp due to the commercial scale that it, it collapsed so quickly that all of a sudden you have exact numbers Whereas before it was uncountable and it's, it's quite astounding and, and extremely depressing at the same time. Yeah, it went from being uncountable to being countable to being uncountable again. Exactly. For a different reason, yeah. The, the passenger pigeon, uh, since they were so, you know, uncountable and must have had such a huge impression on people, I wonder, uh, is there a lot of sort of cultural references to this? Um, did it play any importance in Native American culture, for example? Um, you know, it's the sad thing for me is in most of the books that are published, there's very little um, Native American uh, and First Nations accounts and cultural uh, uh, records of passenger pigeons and their significance. Um, but, you know, clearly, clearly there would have been huge significance with, with such a resource. Um, we do have you know, one of one of the um, one of the most eloquent writers about passenger pigeons was Chief uh, Simon Pokagan of the Potawatomi tribe, um, and you know the way he writes about the pigeon, you clearly get this sense of deep connection and reverence for the bird. And um, here, I'm, I'm going to find a quote 
really quickly that's definitely worth reading because even though we don't have a lot of 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 published history his his one quote definitely i think sums up that there was a deep connection that is worth exploring more uh something i would love to see and do uh, see happen and 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 help maybe try to make happen is to talk to more first nations people here in the us and and get more of their oral traditions and their history with that species um you know written down for posterity so that we can really begin to appreciate more of the history and the traditional knowledge for this bird. So back in the 1890s, um, Simon Pokagan wrote this great paper with this passage. And what's really key, I think what's beautiful about the way he writes is in his lifetime, he witnessed the birds go from billions to zero. Um, he lived through that entire period of time. So when he was young, he would go out you know, with his grandfather, or his father and see these giant flocks of birds all the way to the time he was an adult, he, he could still go out and visit trappers and see billions of these birds. And he lived, he, he outlived these birds in the environment. So he saw that disappear. And in the 1890s, he wrote, it was proverbial with our fathers that if the great spirit in his wisdom could have created a more elegant bird in plumage, form and movement, he never did. That's powerful. That does definitely speak, yeah, to some sort of cultural connection, which perhaps it's been mostly undocumented, or perhaps it's just not been brought up as much as it ought to be in the conversation about the species. Yeah. Um, I recently did a webinar on passenger pigeons, and Dr. Ian Thompson um, of the Choctaw Nation gave an introductory talk, and it was it was really great. It was, you know, but it once again echoed just how much of this knowledge has been lost and needs to be kind of re-explored um, in these cultures. But at the end of the webinar, he was kind of asked a question about like the current state of the world with climate change and the environment. And, and he said something very, very powerful that I think is an important message that ties the story of the passenger pigeons extinction to today. And that was that at the time the passenger pigeons were going extinct, the way that European and Americans viewed the, the species was very similar with how um, certain elements of our culture today are viewing climate change. This idea that it's not happening, that we can put the problem off to another generation, that, that there's, there's not just an apathy, but an actual forward confrontation of no, this is, there's no way the passenger pigeon is, could go extinct. There's billions of them. And, and this idea that even when they disappeared and the evidence was in front of everyone, they would still say things like, oh, the passenger pigeons, they've just gone to the Rocky Mountains or they went to, to the Gulf of Mexico. There were people saying things like, oh yeah, they, they went to South America. And on the way, they all got killed by a hurricane. Like this, this way of trying to move blame to some natural phenomena to where business could go on as usual. Um, where it, when, when it didn't, you know, that, that's the thing is hundreds to thousands of people whose livelihoods relied on trapping passenger pigeons lost their jobs literally in the middle of their careers because it was unsustainable. And, and you know, we see the same thing with climate change where we have so many people trying to make this about economics or other political issues that are saying, no, it's not happening. 
when the writing is on the wall right in front of us. Um, and that's another really great quote by Simon Pokagan that comes on, uh, that, that talks about that when he says, um, white men tell us they have moved in a body to the Rocky Mountain region where they are as plenty as they were here. But when we ask red men who are familiar with the mountain country about they take their heads in disbelief. Um, and so it's like, you know, I think that was a very powerful historical connection to what was going on then and what is going on now. And I hope that both in terms of passenger pigeon de-extinction and fighting climate change, that there is a, a resolution where we come together and, and do things that help the world rather than ignore the problems we have. I suppose it's the perennial issue of what you could rather dryly call the fallacy of infinite abundance, but really it's the human tendency to look at something and see how big or how numerous or how old it is and assume that because it is so big, so widespread, so old, because it has always been so, therefore it must always stay that way. Yeah. It's interesting as well, uh, even in more recent times, in papers from the 90s and the early 2000s, we see um, a lot of uh, papers stating that uh, habitat change and um, uh, genetic bottlenecks were what really did the passenger bin and hunting was the last blow. Can, can, you, can you speak to if there's any validity there or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, for, for a century after their extinction, research continually tried to explain how a flock of, you know, a, po a population of 5 billion could go to zero in, in half a century. And in truth, you know, the research I've done on the census population shows that this population really went from, you know, uh, it, it, there were about a billion birds in 1878. And one decade later, there was probably only 10,000 birds, which is an astronomically hard to grasp loss of of numbers that's right um, we're not even really talking about a decline per se like gradual we're talking about most of the individual animals being shot away we're, we're talking about basically complete annihilation in a 10-year period um and and uh it's and the declines were sharp before then you know the previous decade had seen like an 80% decline, you know, the previous decades, it seemed 40% decline, like this decline was actively visibly happening. But it's, it's hard, like when there's billions, it's hard to count the difference between 1 billion and 5 billion. Um, even though there was a very real decline going on, that people did talk about for years. Um, uh, and most people, you know, some people did note and other people just ignored. Um, the the research trying to reconcile that thought, okay, well, there had to have been some, some biological factor aiding this. How could 1800s people annihilate a population like that? Um, so I think all the way up until 2014, people were publishing a, a lot of different ideas about how passenger pigeons were susceptible to extinction. And the first paper to come out to, to press back on that well, well, actually, I should say the first person to write about it to press back on that was uh, to write about it scientifically was uh, uh, Shorger in 1955. So if you go back to his seminal work in 1955, he says human beings are absolutely responsible for the passenger pigeons extinction. But at the time, he really couldn't offer a lot of science other than just the records that existed. 
Um, and so even though he said, yes, it was humans, in the decades that followed, it was just one, one scientific explanation after another as to why the species might have been vulnerable to human activities. Um, and in 2014, even a genomics paper, which has you know, several flaws in it, uh, pointed out that maybe the species was on a downswing and, and there were errors with that, that calculation, which we corrected in our papers. Um, but the first paper to come out by Jessica Stanton that showed the opposite trend uh, was a paper that used model simulations to look at the effect of harvesting versus deforestation. And there are maps for how the forest was deforested. So there's all this data to look at and reanalyze. And she found that in simulation models, in not, there wasn't a single simulation model in which deforestation explained the extinction of the passenger pigeon by itself. Um, the strongest models were a combination of deforestation and harvesting, which of course is what happened. But in models where she only simulated the impact of harvesting without deforestation, harvesting did in some simulations create the extinction of passenger pigeons. Um, and so in her paper, she you know, was able to say that harvesting was definitely the primary factor. Now, that paper by itself did not explain whether or not the species was somehow more susceptible to that rate of harvest or something like that, what people tried to get, explain away. But you know, in, in uh, research that came out several years ago um, by uh, Jarek Roberts and, oh goodness, now I forget uh, everyone that published, but uh, people looked at the records of eggs laying and reproduction and found that there was no decline in reproductive output of passenger pigeons, no matter how rare they got. Um, some of the very last passenger pigeons ever shot were juveniles, proving that they were, that they were raising offspring. So, I mean, that data alone basically refutes the idea of alley effects and other issues that people have proposed. Um, so when you remove forestation, deforestation, and alley effects, you're really not left with a lot of science to support the idea that passenger pigeons were somehow susceptible to extinction. Um, and when you correct the population curves, which we did in our genomics research and start looking at this, what emerges is a picture of a super species that, that was not susceptible to extinction. And other independent genetic studies have also shown now that up right up to the extinction of the passenger pigeon, this was not a species that was um, losing genetic diversity or, or, you know, showing the signs of a species on the verge of collapse. Like this was human harvesting that came in and human alterations to the environment that came in and obliterated this species. And I think that even though we have not yet published all of our data on that, the, the science from multiple independent resource uh, teams now is squarely showing that this was a human caused event. And this was, this was an incredibly well-adapted species that may have never gone extinct as long as there were forests in the Eastern US to live on. And it was a species actively shaping those forests. So in truth, it, it may never have gone extinct. It existed for 12 million years without a whole great degree of change or, or vulnerability. So yeah, it seems like it went a long time. Quite an incredible claim that they would just go extinct due to genetic trends all of a sudden yeah. after yeah. so many millions of years i think it's it's a similar issue you get in with with uh, other parts of other extinctions also in prehistory in more recent times when you have this debate about what caused it it's that oftentimes 
the causal mechanism proposed, if it's not humans, is completely incongruous as to why it would happen now. And there's always the fact that you happen to have this rough overlap with people. You have millions of years of persistence through rapidly changing climates again and again and again. And then suddenly, instantly, in geological timescale, you see this unprecedented collapse. And it roughly coincides with people. It just seems quite crazy that it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of studies that still contend that the mass extinctions of megafauna and other species from the past few hundred thousand years um, are climate driven rather than human driven. And, and uh, I, I just reject all of that because it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's not taking into account the biases of the fossil record that we, we can't see. And there's too many models that have come out showing that you can explain all of the mass extinctions of the past 125,000 years through human activities. Um, and there is that undoubted correlation. Um, what's really interesting is there was a paper on bison genetics uh, of the Beringian steppe uh, environment that was published in 2002 by, by my master's thesis uh, uh, supervisor Beth Shapiro, who is actually a, now a board member of Re- Revive and Restore. And in that f- paper, they published this dec- uh, population curve that showed a decline in bison populations that corresponded to 30,000 years ago. And, and in that first paper, they published that this was decline well in advance of the arrival of people, which the first definitive records of people in the region was 15,000 years ago. And this curve ended up getting uh, refined with new techniques. And it's really incredible because this curve shows, it shows that 30,000 year decline. And then another, sh- it shows a kind of a sharp decline around 15,000 years when people arrive, but then it shows the species kind of coming back. And I think that's probably the result of, of, Amer- you know, first nations, people reaching a more harmonious hunting balance with bison, but then it shows a very sharp little decline right at the end which corresponds to the European fur trade. So like all of the things that we would expect from this, this, this curve are captured in it. So it's, it, you know, it proves its reliability. What's interesting though, is that 30,000 year decline, which up until you know, that point in time when it had been published and years later was still like, oh, well, people weren't there. Well, now there's a growing amount of evidence that shows that human beings were in America around the 30,000 year mark. So, you know, I think it's a great example of where the data showed a decline caused by humans before we had the evidence to know that humans were actually there. And so I think that's, that's, this is the fight that people have. They talk about, oh, well, were humans there and were they there long enough to cause these declines in, in megafauna and wildlife? And I'm thinking, you know, I think that most oftentimes if you're seeing a decline, a drastic decline in megafauna, even if there's no evidence that humans got there, it's probably, humans probably were there. (laughs) Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, it's quite natural to see populations boom and bust. It's just the actual extinctions themselves are quite quite rare because of course we see, you know, cooling and heating events. So in warm periods, colder species will retract northwards in their range. Vice versa, during cold periods, you get sort of these refugia, for warm species, but they almost always have those refugia. 
it's very yes. rare that you see actual species extinctions uh, due to temperature changes, except in cases where they're succeeded by other similar species. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the average lifespan of a mammalian species in the fossil record is between three and five million years. And, and we only see mass extinction events when something catastrophic is happening. And climate change, particularly the climate change we see over the past two million years in the Ice Age, those are not catastrophic events. They're global warming and global cooling events, but they're not catastrophic. And as you say, there's right. refugia. And I think people are really splitting hairs when they say, oh, well, this species retracted to its refugia. And then human beings came and wiped them out as like, as like a way of saying like, oh, well, the species was probably was declining anyway. It's like, well, yeah, it had declined to its stable point where it would have then expanded from again. Um, and so like, it's, it's, it's sort of a yeah, fallacious a, arguing, yeah. Yeah, like, like that, that arguing is part of its human, natural distribution. Yeah, arguing if humans had killed like the last member of a species or when humans came in and caused the extinction is, is a, it almost seems like a really pedantic and almost childish academic exercise when, when if you can say, yes, human beings caused the extinction, you cannot then say whether or not the species would have or would not have recovered if you had removed humans from the equation. If humans cause the extinction, they just cause the extinction and that's that. It doesn't matter really what other elements were acting on it, unless you care about using that science today where we know we have species that are experiencing declines due to climate change and we want to maybe avoid what human beings had done to other animals declining from climate change in the past. But the reality is that today, there are very few cases in which um, what we have with wildlife today mimics what has happened in previous climate events because this is climate change occurring at one, a rate that it has never occurred at before. Um, and two, it's occurring in populations that are now living in highly fragmented uh, 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 settings where we have the restriction of gene flow and very inbred populations, like species are not able to migrate freely the way they used to be able to because of the barriers we've set in place. So, I mean, I think studying paleoecology and how, how humans and, and species dynamics worked during the Pleistocene has a certain amount of foundational value. It certainly does not have a great deal of application to what we've done with the environment today. Okay, uh, so moving on to sort of the more practical implementations of de-extinction. You know, let's say you, you know, we succeed, you succeed with all the genetic uh, engineering and you got a viable population of five, 10 passenger pigeons or, or recreated passenger pigeons. Where do you go from there? How, how do you get to a population of, you know, one or five billion? Well, you know, it, it comes down to money, really. Everything always comes down to money. Um, so in, in conservation species have been brought back from the brink of extinction, you know, it, uh, like black-footed ferrets, California condors or, or Mauritian pink pigeons, um, Chatham Island black robins, like all these examples where species got down to, uh, a, a couple dozen or less individuals and have been repopulated to several hundred, um, to several thousand, um, it took just 
it took the concerted effort of of captive managed conservation breeding and in all those instances almost almost always the the programs were limited with the natural biology of the species, um, breeding seasonally, et cetera. And for many reasons, that was the better way, uh, approach to take because you want your animals to uh, be returned to the wild in a way that they will thrive. So you mimic natural breeding conditions in captivity. Um, for birds, an approach that has been taken is called uh, pumping where you, you, you remove an egg to stimulate the breeding pair into laying another egg to replace it. And so you can double the amount of offspring and you take the extra eggs, incubate those artificially and, um, and raise those with puppets or, or surrogate parents. And with birds, that really interesting thing is it, I imagine for passenger pigeons, if we have the money and facilities to really scale that up, um, we could be producing maybe 10 times or more as much offspring than naturally could be produced in a single year, particularly because with these projects, what's different is the very first birds that breed passenger pigeons will not be passenger pigeons. Um, they will be a chimeric bird that's a surrogate mom and a surrogate father that have the sperm and the eggs of pass re redesigned passenger pigeons inside of them but we may use like a, a classic rock pigeon and a rock pigeon can breed all year round. A, a, a pair of rock pigeons could actually be pumped to produce maybe more than 50 offspring in one year. Um, and, and then, you know, if you keep a large flock of rock pigeons or even bandtail pigeons to surrogate raise those animals, then you can have a small flock of chimeras producing hundreds of offspring a year that may be being born at different times of the year. So they're all at slightly different ages, but with that first kind of cohort, if we breed them slightly unnaturally and then transition their offspring to natural breeding, we could potentially start to breed thousands of, of passenger pigeons every year and build up uh, of, you know, a captive population in the, in the 10,000 plus range if we have the facilities to house them. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's all about scale. It's definitely possible. And then you transition to smaller groups within the captive population that are breeding on natural cycles. And we use their offspring to then start populating the wild. But we do that once we get to several thousand doing that rather than, rather than several dozen. It is a uh, not quite relevant, but I feel I have to, <laughs> to note that all the while we've been having this conversation about pigeon breeding, there has been a pair of wood pigeons right out of, outside my window in the process of building a nest. Excellent. So, Excellent. <laughs> reality reinforcing the point. But that, that's interesting. I suppose that would require a rather large budget, however, to keep such a thing running for a longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, with, with any conservation program, even these de-extinction programs, the most expensive part is the facilities to keep live animals, um, to meet the requirements of their natural biology, uh, of adequate welfare, to staff those facilities uh, with, with people that can be there seven days a week. I mean, that's the thing is you need enough staff so that everybody can have a weekend, but you need people on site every day, every day you know, of the week usually longer than eight hour shifts, right? You're looking at maybe 14, 16 hour type of periods of time where you need people present. 
um, and may even need night shifts uh, for these types of things. So uh, veterinary staff to take care of, 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 you know, sick and injured birds and, and um, you know, the amount of feed that goes into that. So, and, and as well as the fact that, you know, you need to build these facilities if it's completely indoors, they have to have particular air circulation and ventilation. If they're outdoors, then they need to have secondary barriers to prevent predators from invading. Um, and so, I mean, that's the thing is these, these are, it, it costs tens of millions of dollars to run captive breeding facilities for endangered programs every year. And so these programs do rack up a great deal of money. And so to build scale, where to house an unimaginable amount of say 10,000 captive passenger pigeons would require a number of independent facilities and staff and a large budget. And it will be the most expensive part of the program. Well, how many facilities exist today that are housing tens of thousands of birds at the same time? Probably quite unparalleled. The only facilities that do that um, are people who uh, manage pigeon racing facilities. So, for, so that's you know in, in the domestic market, right? So, so people who have pigeon, racing pigeons often will have several thousand birds um, in giant lofts, you know, the size of a football field or more. Um, there's a program in in the Middle East and and Morocco and Northern Africa area where people breed. Uh, uh, Hubara bustards, and and I think there's actually one facility where they have over 17,000 birds. Um, so there are some very large facilities for breeding birds, but they're almost always, uh, uh, you know, driven by uh, an economic structure outside of conservation. I am unfamiliar with any conservation breeding facility that has thousands of birds outside of perhaps the Sutton Center in the United States, which breeds maybe not thousands, but at least up to all, nearly thousands of prairie chickens for research and conservation purposes. But most conservation programs are dealing with dozens to hundreds of birds spread out across multiple breeding facilities. So any breeding facility itself may only have a couple hundred animals. So even though there might be a few thousand of a particular bird in captivity, each individual facility may only have a couple hundred um, and we're thinking, you know, we're thinking of needing something like a facility that could definitely house maybe five to 10,000 passenger pigeons. The one advantage to passenger pigeons, of course, is that they're a highly socially dense animal. So 10,000 passenger pigeons in captivity is very different from housing 10,000 birds of a different species because they will want to be several thousand roosting in a single tree. So 10,000 passenger pigeons could be housed with, with five large trees in a giant aviary, or could be bred on maybe just a couple acres of land in a very large aviary um, setting. Um, so that does will work, I think, in our, in our favor long-term. And, and I suppose uh, there's a great economic argument to be, make, to be made for, for, for doing this sort of project. I mean, first of all, you could obviously save a lot of money on active forest management if you had a, a large population of passenger pigeons wild. But I also do have to wonder that the species must um, have a long-term commercial value as a hunting species as well. Obviously not to the extent that it was in the 1800s, uh, but certainly regulated hunting of passenger pigeons is probably quite viable. 
I think it is a very viable, I think that, so I imagine a future in which there are a great deal of economic opportunities in re recovering passenger pigeons. Um, you know, we, we, we try to balance what are the economic threats versus the economic opportunities. And, and you know, a lot of the, the risk questions come from agriculture, like, is this going to be an agricultural pest? And to, to almost all agricultural crops, the answer is no. With modern, the way, the way, with the way we do modern agriculture, wood pigeons have not become pests anywhere in the world. And there's no reason that a larger, denser flock becomes a pest with the way that uh, we plant seeds and the way they grow, the way they harvest. Most birds are typically coming into, say, corn, wheat, and other types of crops and eating the seeds that are left on the ground post-harvest. They're not, they're not damaging uh, uh, growing crops. I think the one crop where there's a potential risk are orchards, where the birds could potentially come in and destroy orchard trees because they roost or nest on them. But you know, we're we're talking about being decades away from having giant flocks of passenger pigeons, possibly more than a century before they reach really huge numbers. Um, assuming that we get the funding, you know, like a twenty-five million dollar donation right now to get this project like really underway, um, or 25 million people all donate $1 <laughs> to make this happen. Um, which if, if 25 million people are listening, donate $1 and we will guarantee passenger pigeons. I mean, I mean it, it's really a money thing. It comes down to that. Um, but you know, in that time, there will definitely be the space needed to develop mitigation strategies. So I don't feel that there should ever be an economic loss to passenger pigeons. Um, a chance for many, many more gains with ecotourism. Birding in the United States is anywhere between a 40 and $80 billion fluctuating annual industry. You know, what, what greater allure would there be than a flock of 100 million passenger pigeons coming through some obscure upstate New York area? Um, there are already major festivals for birding. Um, and when you get to the idea of being, there being hundreds of thousands to millions of passenger pigeons, you would get to a point where regulated hunting could be enacted and there will be people dying to, to pay, you know, potentially exorbitant amounts of money to hunt, to be a part of the first passenger pigeon hunt. Um, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to promote or even talk about because people that pay, you know, safari hunts and whatnot uh, kind of prices we typically see them as maybe amoral or, or unethical, but these people that want to go out and hunt large game or exotic game and pay a lot of money to do it are putting tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars by themselves into management uh, uh, programs. Um, you know, safari hunting is what sustains anti-poaching activities in Africa. Uh, uh, auction hunting in the United States is what sustains a lot of state management level uh, conservation. But the little guys like me, like I do, I bow hunt. I, I bow hunt and I, I gun hunt deer and, and turkey and, and, and upland birds. You know, the little guys who hunt, we pay you know, anywhere between like eight and $20 for a hunting license and then maybe $10 for a tag to, to go hunt. And when thousands and thousands of people do that, it generates tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage populations. And in the last century of regulated hunting in North America, not a single managed species has gone extinct, um, which is a complete about face from the previous few hundred years in which almost every species that went extinct went extinct due to human overkill. So we were able to take the, the very thing killing species off 
and turn it into something that sustained species. And today, many of our game species are the most abundant species we have on the planet, even though, uh, I mean, sorry, not the planet, in, in the country, vertebrate species in the country, even though all those species, turkey, white-tailed deer, for instance, were on the verge of extinction in the early 1900s and now are, are so common, some people think of them as pests. So I do think hunting is a potential revenue source. I also think things like collecting guano for organic fertilizer and farming, um, you know, felled pigeon trees for artisanal woodwork. I think there's a huge, huge maker market and, and small, uh, you know, orga organic and agricultural market that could revolve around these, the dynamics of these birds. I discussed this in my latest essay up on the website in the blog section called The Hunting Ape, where I talk about hunting and its history, uh, evolutionarily and culturally, but also how it's affected nature. And from my observation, we often talk about hunting as if it's a monolithic thing, but it's really not. Hunting for sport or for a sort of leisure, small-scale game, I can't really think of very many or even any particular extinctions that have been linked to that. So even the previous extinction of the passenger pigeon was in a sense, subsistence hunting. Sort of leisure hunting is a rather different beast for hunting for furs or for sort of medicine or food or some other force like this. Leisure hunting, when it exists, tends to actually be roughly neutral, partially, as you say, because it's often a key source of, source of income for conservation. Conservation is not the most profitable of businesses. So you kind of need to count your friends where you have them especially those friends that have some money in their pockets. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you would be hard pressed in any, any uh, uh, instance of history to link an extinction to subsistence or leisure hunting. Um, it, it, is, it is absolutely industrial scale and overkill harvest, um, which is still going on today, right? With, it's just not on land, it's with, um, with fisheries. You know, in the marine environments, what astounds me is we've gone over a hundred years since passenger pigeons go extinct to thinking that we can just overfish like mad the seas and not see consequences. Um, and on terrestrial environments, uh, regulated harvest has definitely turned things around. Now there are, it, it is, even in the North American model, there's, there's a lot of political corruption to hunting in which it doesn't follow science, in which there's have been hugely bad mistakes that have almost annihilated local populations, but confederacy where, where each individual region is what managing its hunting, we haven't seen global scale extinction because of it. It absolutely needs to be improved though. I think uh, one of my issues today with hunting, which I would not want my new passenger pigeons to be subject to of this, is the idea that there are a lot of sport hunters now today who don't appreciate the conservation history and ecological significance of hunting. And they're just out there to kill animals. Um, they're, if, we, if we can be, as a hunter myself, if I'd be so bold, they're just people that want to go murder life and, and can't do, they can't kill people legally. So they're just out to just slaughter things. And this has been popularized by different programs on outdoors channels, by you know the, the people like Ted Nugent defending uh, uh, high fenced hunting in Texas. I mean, there's, there's an absolute deplorable nature of hunting out there, but the system itself has been a proven system for, for a century that you can incentivize human beings to go out and harvest. And a lot of them go out and have extremely moral ethical ties to nature. 
but I think the problem at risk we see in the United States now is we do see a shift to a more unethical historic mindset because we are now living in an age in which our game species are replenished and people believe, oh, we should be able to just hunt a lot of them for whatever reason. And there's no memory from our grandfathers and our great grandparents of when those species were over hunted to near extinction. And that what we're dealing with today is a precious resource that people spent decades rebuilding. Um, and that's where this amnesia, and I think the story of the passenger pigeon is so important, is just to recall that history and then look at the fact that we could get some of these things back, but tie it to those historical stories that mean something for us today. I think if you look at people like the Native Americans, the Plains Indians, and the way they managed the bison, it shows that it's possible to have over many generations a sort of sustainable or semi-sustainable management of populations without any memory of a period of decline. But I think perhaps that requires some very ingrained traditions in the culture regarding those practices. Yeah. I often use that example because when Europeans arrived in North America, there were possibly a hundred million human beings already living in this continent um, in a variety of different, uh, you know, living uh, environments in which there were, there were cities with agriculture tied to them, trade routes, you know, there's, we, we tend to view the First Nations as being somehow very different from how we operate today but they were not, they, they were human cultures operating very similarly. In fact, one of the largest cities in the world for a long time uh, was Cahokia in the United States, which may have had a million people in it. Um, and those hundred million people with their trade routes, their hunting, their agriculture, their fire management, everything they were doing shaping the landscape were living alongside 50 million bison, 500 million prairie dogs, 5 billion passenger pigeons, you know, they were living in, in the same continent as the most abundant populations left in the world at the time. And then Europeans obliterated that by, by, by changing how things were done. It gives me hope that, you know, if we can connect to more traditional knowledge combined with high technology for how trends we see should be going today, um, that we can have billions of people on the planet with immense numbers of wildlife and nature at the same time. But it's, we're not going to get there unless we change how three things, how we acquire energy, natural resources, and food. Food and water, if we combine those two. We have to change how we acquire and use and and sustain those three things and we have to stop using land to do it that's the key thing like we have to stop using hundreds of thousands to hundreds of millions of acres of land to grow food we need to turn that into a tiny amount of land that grows all the food we need or cell culture based uh, operations that produce this the food we need we need to absolutely fundamentally put land back into uh, a state in which humans and wildlife can use it equally um, without barriers. You know, my, my vision of the future is not just passenger pigeons, but it's the idea that cities with giant towers are what grow crops. And, um, you know, and, and agriculture becomes more of a small farm, small ranch uh, family kind of thing again from a long time ago where this, this industrial scale farming gets replaced by uh, urbanized 
scale agriculture and cellular agriculture, and that our highways are built on, you know, carbon nanotube frames that are raised off the ground so that wildlife can just walk underneath of it rather than have to cross highways. We know that interstates are huge barriers to gene flow. Uh, and, and basically we start to convert the way we use land now into a way in which wild environments can coexist in the exact same location. Um, and we know that this can work. We, can all, we already see this happening in cities like Singapore, where they have built artificial forest structures and have cleaned up their rivers to the point where otters actually are living in the cities. We can see this in, in how wildlife has invaded city parks and is adapting to urban areas. But for the last century, most of what's been going on is wildlife adapting to the new human environment versus human beings thinking, how can we adapt our environments to be accommodating to the rest of the planet? And the next century absolutely in confronting climate change has to be about confronting that as well. And I really hope that our passenger pigeon projects, our mammoth projects, these big ambitious moonshots really start getting people thinking about that, about what does a world look like that could have 5 billion passenger pigeons again and 50 million bison again and 100 million mammoths ro roaming the northern. What can a world look like with 10 billion people doing amazing, incredible things with equity and, and racial justice and on top of all of that wildlife at the same time. I think uh, that's a, yeah, pretty excellent note to end on then. Um, if you have anything extra that you don't think you've uh, covered yet, Novak. You know, uh, uh, the, I think I've said it before, but the, the, always the sign off is of course that Revive and Restore's projects, um, our passenger pigeon effort, uh, you know, a, a, some of these projects are actually, our de-extinction projects are now a small part of what we do. We, we are now funding a large number of conservation genomics projects that are setting the stage for conservation genomics like no other projects have before. Um, advancing biotechnologies for coral reefs and other ecosystems where we need that science and we don't have it yet. We are doing a lot um, and it all is possible from the donations of, of individuals like the people listening to this podcast right now. And literally every dollar, $10, $25 donation keeps the lights on and ends up becoming something like the world's first cloned black-footed ferret and eventually possibly the world's first reborn passenger pigeon um, to the world's, you know, to Columbia's first conservation genomics project, which we funded on jaguars and projects sequencing the genomes of all the world's uh, sea turtle species and six whale species. Um, we are doing things that no other nonprofit is doing and it runs completely on donations. So, you know, anyone that is interested in this work, get on our website, think about donating, see the different ways you can donate and a really cool way to donate that um, doesn't require any money from you, the listener, is through Amazon Smile. You get on smile.amazon.com. And if you use that link for all of your Amazon shopping, when you sign in, it will prompt you to pick a charity and you can choose Revive and Restore. It is a registered charity through Amazon Smile. And from that point on, certain eligible pur purchases you make, Amazon will donate 0.5% of the profits to us. And so it's, you get something cool from Amazon that shows up in your mailbox. 
and Revive and Restore gets a small bit of Amazon's profit to, to drive our projects forward. We are going to continue to innovate ways in which we can uh, uh, you know, uh, spur funding for these projects. But you know, as I said, passenger pigeon de-extinction literally would be off the ground and flying in the next two decades if you know, we had $25 million up front. Um, we've been keeping these projects going on shoestring budgets. Um, de-extinction stimulates the media interest, but it just hasn't captured the interest of major donors. And so, you know, if we could get a few million people to donate even just a few dollars, that would make this project happen. And we would no longer be doing podcasts about what are we going to be thinking about the future? And we would actually get to a point where we're living it. Excellent. Son? That's a, that's fantastic. That was a fantastic uh, podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Was, and you heard him. Go visit their website, and if you can, drop a few dollars. Yeah, bookmark smiled at Amazon because uh, that's a great way of funding it without yeah. any additional cost to you if you can't afford donations. Yep. Well, on that note, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me.